never get enough of the picture of the majesty of God, can we? Holy, holy, holy. I'm trying to imagine that scene when we're all standing there in the great congregation and God himself is seated on the throne and Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is on his right hand. Just trying to imagine that. But you know, he's given us our life together. He's given, our, he's given us salvation. We're celebrating the, the death of Jesus on the cross to pay for our sins today. He's given us access into this great glory of his. And so we can practice up on it now, Right? Practice up on seeing God for who he is. We need constant reminders. I need constant reminders of who God is. As the book title says, your God is too small. Your God is too small. We constantly need reminders to, to say, God is holy. He is mighty. He is powerful. And praise the Lord, he's merciful too. Praise the Lord, he's merciful too. I heard a story about a man who lived a privileged life. He lived in opulence, and he, lived, he had the finest education, and he lived in the shadow of very, very important people. He met, all the, he met all the contemporary criteria that we have today of privileged. What made his story all the more interesting is that he didn't really belong in this strata of society. His birthright was actually part of another culture, another society that didn't have access to this kind of privilege and opulence that he was living in. And as I heard the story, because of this difference, there was a tension that was beginning to grow in his life as he grew up. And as the years went by, he was more and more sensitive to the remarks that were made by his family about the people of his birth. He became more and more aware of the difficulty it was for these two groups of people to live side by side. Though it was subtle, he probably wasn't even aware of it. His anger about the injustice and mistreatment his people were enduring was, was building up inside of him. And though his family loved him, and though he had an extremely privileged lifestyle, he, he just couldn't stop thinking about the injustices going, around, going on all around him with his people. I imagine he spent a good deal of time trying to figure out how he could help his people and how he could resolve this tension in the culture and in his life. And then the way I heard the story, he probably didn't even see this event coming. It was a day like all other days. He was out for his daily walk. He was just taking in the scenes of, of life all around him and just enjoying the day, and, and then it happened. He came upon a, a staff member of his family, and he was, he was abusing one of the people from his culture of birth, his, his people. He was abusing him. And I wonder if all those whispers in his family and all the snide remarks that he had heard over the years and all the scenes of mistreatment that had happened, I wonder if that all just kind of caved in on him at that, at that moment. And he blew. In all those years of physical training, he was in top physical shape. In all those years of self-defense training and military training, they all kicked in in that moment of, of anger. The rage that had been building up in him all these years suddenly came pouring out. And in a moment, he overcame the staff person. And in a moment, 
the abuser lie dead on the ground. Moses thought that his people would see him as a redeemer of kind of sorts, that he was someone who was come to set them free. He thought he could do it under his own power. Instead, his people looked on him as a murderer. Pharaoh, in whose household he grew up in, was now setting out to kill Moses. So in a reaction to the injustice, Moses reacted with anger and with violence. In a reaction to his fear, he fled the city and he began to wander in the desert. You see, his anger was well-placed, but his reaction to it brought devastating consequences. And as the story goes, Moses' problem with anger never did serve him well. I don't think we can understand the issue of anger in his life. If, if you look at his story, Moses was led by God to set the people free from bondage. He led them. He fed them. And he shepherded them with great care out in the desert for all those years in the most difficult of circumstances. And in return for his leadership, the people grumbled and complained at every corner. They were known as a stiff-necked people. No food, no water, and no protection from the pursuing Pharaoh. And they complained about it all, constantly. And when Moses went up on the mountain to get the law from the Lord, the people were down at camp making an idol out of gold, making a, a golden calf. And when Moses saw it, actually God saw it, and God told him to go down and address the people. When he came down the mountain, he smashed the tablets of the law and he sternly chastised the people, to put it mildly, for turning away from God. There were other challenging moments for Moses as well and for his leadership. But the capstone came at a place called Meribah. And once again, people were complaining and grumbling about the lack of water. Moses and his assistant, his, his brother, Aaron, we're at their wit's end. Moses was right up to here with all this complaining and grumbling. The Lord had given him a Lord gave him a provision, just like he had done before, and he said water would come from a rock. The first time this happened, and Moses was directed to go and remember how what was he supposed to do? Tap the tap the rock, and water would come out. This time. God said, what? You remember? Speak to the rock. Don't tap it with your staff, the famous staff of Moses. Again, who can blame Moses for being angry? His, his sister had just died, and the, the people were out in full force with their complaining and their grumbling. Who, who can blame him? Once again, Moses and Aaron were asking God, they were begging God, how do we handle such a stiff-necked people? What do we do now? Moses was exhausted with the frustration. You see, his anger might have been justified, but his reaction wasn't. Against God's orders, Moses took his staff and hit the rock, not once, but twice. I'm, I'm going to guess that these weren't little taps of his shepherd's staff. I'm just going out on a limb here. 
I'm guessing, I'm guessing he was, he was mad. And I'm guessing, like, like I do sometimes out in the garage, he just let fly. And don't look at me like I'm by myself on that. I'll bet he let fly. And I, I'll bet he gave it a good whack. Twice. His anger wasn't the issue. His reaction to it was. So if you know the rest of the story, you know that God was also fed up. But his focus wasn't on the people this time. It was on Moses and his anger. This time there would be consequences for Moses' outrage. He'd not be able to lead God's people into the promised land. Because of his anger issue, he would only see the promised land. But he would never enter the land that he had led his people for 40 years to find. All because of his anger. So I'm guessing, if you're like me, many of us can relate to the issues of anger. We might be right as rain in our anger. We may be completely justified in our anger. But our reaction to anger gets completely out of hand. And for me, when I consider the transformation of the Lord in my own life, and, and um, somebody asked me that just this week, one of the first things that comes to my mind is the way I deal with anger. Over the years, it, it's gotten better, not worse. The Lord has worked in that. I'm not, I'm not there yet, but I think the Lord's done a tremendous work, and it's on this topic of anger. As it turns out, this issue of anger is one of the primary issues of godliness that Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. And as he always does, Jesus turned the understanding of anger on its head. So that's what I'd like to look at today. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 21 and 22 today. Jesus said this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Now, just prior to this, if you, remember, if, you can, if you can remember back to last Sunday, Jesus clarified his relationship to the Old Testament law. Remember what he said back in verses uh, 17 to 20? He said, I do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he goes on to say that not a jot or a tittle would pass away until it was all fulfilled. And though his teaching to those who were watching and listening and, and those who were gathered around him, his teaching seemed to tip over the Old Testament, in reality it revealed the full depth of the law. And it reveals how Jesus Christ himself was the, full, was the actual fulfillment of the law. His teaching also shows how the law, or the interpretations of it would be a better way to say it, 
dealt with external or measurable issues. We talked about this last week. Jesus was more concerned with what's going on in our heart, what's going on in the interior of our lives. Jesus is more concerned about transformation in the depths of our heart than he was the exterior measurable things. And the law, or more clearly stated, the, the interpretation of the law that the Pharisees had added onto it and all the religious leaders was not the point. In the law that God gave Moses, in the, in the law that is the Old Testament, it points to these issues. Because they focused on the material things, the outside things, the exterior things, the, the things that we could measure, they minimized the law. And now Jesus comes along and says, now let me tell you. But I say to you, underline every time he says, but I say to you in, in Matthew chapter 5. So as, a, as an example of this, that's why this, the, the passage on the Old Testament law is so critical to the rest of chapter 5. He's giving us examples of what that looks like. In fact, he's giving us six examples of how the law is, ex, is expressed and what it was intended to address in our lives. The first law, the first example that he gives is the law of murder. So let's look at it. The first thing that I see here, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old. It was said. So if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the original commandment, what does it say? It simply says, you shall not murder. Some might say, you shall not kill. I think the more accurate version is, you shall not murder. So what's the commandment? Pure and simple. Don't kill anybody. Don't murder anybody. Period. That's it. But the leaders had added the idea that you would be held liable to judgment. So what's, what's wrong with that? In fact, God had instituted refuge cities, refuge cities for the accused to run to and to hide in while, while, they, while they tried to figure out what happened in a, in a murder. He had instituted the rule of multiple witnesses in the case of murder. So I I think I have some verses on the slide. There's several verses related to the refuge, the cities of refuge, and the rules that go along with someone who, is, who has murdered somebody. Deuteronomy 4, 41 and 42, who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being at enmity with him in time past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Did you get that? Unintentionally, without being at enmity. Deuteronomy 19, this is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life if anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past. And it goes on. In Joshua 20, if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. You see, the, the Pharisees, they just, they, just, they just put some fences around the law and they just said, as long as you don't murder anybody, you're okay. But I... I wanted to point those verses out to you, and there, there are several others like it as God talks about the cities of refuge. God is concerned about the intention of our heart. God is concerned about what's going on in here, not just what we can measure on the outside. Put simply, they added to it so that they could make the commandment more manageable. And as we said last week, the religious leaders were adding laws and commentaries for the purpose of making God's commands 
more measurable, more quantifiable, more exterior than interior. By adding the judgment aspect, it means just murder, and it means just appearing before a human tribunal. We hear it said often when it comes to sin. When you're trying to explain the gospel to somebody, and you're talking about the idea of sin and what it is to be an offense to God and, and how, how it's, it's, it's part of our lives, and it's a disease that's keeping us from God. And what will someone say back to you? Well, at least I haven't killed anybody. Because that's the measurement, isn't it? That's the measurement. But this issue of murder is more than simply, more than simply the act of murder. It's a matter of the heart. And it's not missed in the Old Testament. Murder was, was to be judged with room for accidental death. The intention of the heart was very much an issue. Unfortunately, the Pharisees saw the, the rules as merely behavior, as merely action, as merely exterior. They took the focus away from the heart. And so Jesus goes on, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, but I say to you, Jesus explains the law in light of his, rev his revelation, revelation of himself, revelation of his teaching of the kingdom. And he's saying very clearly to us today, it's a matter of the heart and intention. The teaching of God's kingdom always gets down to the heart. In fact, he goes on, he goes on and, and goes so far as to make anger a heart issue equivalent to the act of murder. Did you get that? Anger is equivalent to the act of murder. So the heart issue and the behavior are linked together. So let's look at how he frames the issue together. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So here's the first idea, liable to judgment. Anger brings us, I'm going to say that again, anger brings us into the arena of judgment. There may be times when our reaction results in behavior, murder, abuse, harassment, etc., that needs to be tried in a civil court. But Jesus is, is raising the bar. Jesus is, is raising this idea to an eternal court, a heavenly court. Jesus is taking it out of the realm of the civil court, the human court, and he's putting it in God's court. God is the one who discerns the heart. And then he goes on and he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Some people argue that the, these aspects of anger represent some kind of a progression. It gets worse and worse and worse. And, and frankly, that's the way I've looked at this passage for a lot of years. But I, I think I've concluded that it refers to different forms of belittling. In this case, the word raka and the reference is to mental capacity. Whoever insults his brother, it's a, it, the idea is whoever belittles his brother or sister and accuses them of, close your ears, kid, kids uses them of being stupid. When our anger causes us to berate someone, make them feel small, make them feel stupid, make them feel incapable, then our anger has crossed a line and leaves us open to judgment. The kids 
if you're kind of holding your breath right now because the pastor said the word stupid, this is why your parents tell you not to say it. Because it belittles. It berates. And God says it leaves us open to his judgment if we treat people that way. God does not want us talking about other people in these terms. Then he goes on to say, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Our reaction to anger can take us to bad places. Probably the worst place that it can take us is to call someone a fool. The word morose means to belittle someone's heart, to belittle someone's character. It's the idea that we're calling someone worthless, good for nothing. It's the idea that we vilify, that we attack with vengeance their worth as a human being. We attack their dignity. We attack their character. We take our word moron from it. Um, I hesitate to use this illustration, but I'm, you know me. I'm going to do it anyway. So forgive a little bit of shock value this morning. I once worked in an environment, I spent 10 years working at the airport with about 1,000 workers, maybe more. And you put 1,000 guys in one place, and you're going to hear and see lots of different things, right? One day, one of my coworkers got angry with someone and started to criticize and started to belittle, and it was hilarious unless you're the one that's the object of it. What stuck out to me was that in his anger and in his, his mocking, he, 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 he cried out, he, he shouted, and what a worthless bag of skin he is. It's that reaction of anger that Jesus is talking about. Excuse the shock value. But if we don't use those words, we say it somehow. And we cut somebody off at the knees. It's that reaction of, of anger that Jesus is trying to get at here. When we attempt to destroy someone's character, we are in danger of the severest kind of wrath from God. Now, Scripture refers often to fools. But the only context where it's permissible to use the word fool is when someone's behavior and attitude is set fully against God and his wisdom. I have a couple of verses for that too. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Isaiah 32. Then we're all familiar with Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. 
There is none who does good. We're all tempted to call someone a fool. And certainly, if it's not our own behavior, it's the behavior of some around us probably. And, and on the national scene and our political scene, it's, there's lots of opportunities to call people a fool. But I'm coming to the conclusion that that's not my business. That's not my business. That's God's business to determine the heart of someone and determine the foolishness of someone. You shall not murder is more than an act of physical killing. There are more ways to destroy someone's life. We can destroy someone's reputation. We can destroy their confidence by whispering criticism of them. We can... We can, find, we can participate in deliberate fault-finding. We can tear down instead of build up. We can spread falsehoods, lies about somebody. You see, killing doesn't simply mean destroying someone physically. It means destroying the person's spirit and soul, destroying the person in any shape or form. I can't help but go back to Genesis 9-6. This is the first prohibition against murder. It's interesting, it comes so early in the scriptures, already just in Genesis 9, God is already talking about murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Listen to this, underline it in your scripture. For God made man in his own image. You see, the clue to the depth of this command is found in the image of God. The whole basis for judgment is in this sin against God. When I'm participating in this kind of belittling, this kind of destroying, this kind of tearing down, I'm going right at the image of God in someone's life. We are destroying something that God himself created, created in his glory and for his purposes. No matter who the person is, no matter what they have done, they are still a being created in the image of God. And I know what I just said. So don't come up to me after church and say, but you don't understand. Did you know? Have you heard? This person did this or that. And at the bottom, at the end of the day, at the, at the, at the end of the discussion, that person is still made in the image of God. Okay, and you're talking about a guy who throws his shoe at the TV regularly when politicians come on the TV. But when I look at the national news and I say, boy, that person is evil, that person's a fool, I'm entering into this area. And our, our culture is toxic for it these days. But I think Jesus is telling us it's not our business. It's not our business. You know, we, we pray for the Holy Spirit to superintend this place as we gather together for worship. We pray for the Holy Spirit to anoint the preaching of his word and to shine the light of Christ's truth in our hearts. And if that's true, I believe that there isn't a heart in this room that isn't realizing the full depth of this teaching of Jesus at this moment. Because if this teaching is as profound as I think it is, we've all been there 
We've all heard it. We've all received it. We've all said it. We've all given it. It could be, I think it's a coincidence that when Jesus said, let me tell you about the law and what it was intended to communicate, you think it's a coincidence that he puts this one as the first example? I don't. There aren't any coincidences in God's word, just a little insight there. That one I can say for sure. It's not a coincidence that Jesus teaches this as the first illustration of what the law is really saying to us. We congratulate ourselves because we haven't killed anyone while Jesus reminds us and all too vividly of the times that we've sought to destroy someone with our anger. Whether it was with a husband or a wife or whether it's with our kids or our parents, our co-workers, our friends, or fellow students, I dare to say that we've all stepped off this cliff. I imagine, what must it have been? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch. And, and Torah, the whole picture, but Penta, Penta means five, right? First five books written by Moses. I wonder what it was like for Moses to write these words in these books. He wrote it at least twice, you shall not murder. Once here and once in... Deuteronomy, I believe. And then he gave all the rules that we read about refuge cities and all these things that God gave him as, as, as guidelines and rules for dealing with these issues. <coughs> I wonder what it was like for him to write those words knowing what he had done, knowing the problem with anger that he had, knowing that he had actually killed someone out of anger. I wonder what it was like. I wonder if it's like that for us sitting here today, realizing that this umbrella of anger and murder takes in my life too. <coughs> I wonder what it was like when Jesus sat on the side of the hill and he taught his disciples that day. And because many of us were there last, last spring, and we, we sat on the hill or the area where Jesus probably gave this teaching. I can imagine it's in my mind's eye. What do you suppose the disciples heard that day when Jesus said, you shall not murder, but I tell you? I wonder if it got awful quiet on that hillside that day. Nothing to speak back. I wonder what they heard. And I wonder if the full weight of thou shalt not murder is too much to bear. Too much to bear. Now, we're going to continue this discussion next week. We'll get into the anatomy of anger. We'll, get into, we'll pop the hood on this topic, and we'll get into some, uh, what the issues are, what anger looks like, and we'll look for some practical solutions to walking out these truths. Let, me turn, let us turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse, verses 26 and forward. Let us turn there. Let me give you some insights into anger that, that Paul gives us. And then we'll, we'll move to the table. Let me read Ephesians chapter 4, verses, verse 26 to 32. 
Paul writes this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I'm going to ask you to meditate on this passage this coming week as we come back to it next week. But let me give you some ideas that you can meditate on. Look at verse 26. Anger is appropriate at times. Okay, it is appropriate. Moses was appropriate in his anger. It's the reaction that causes us problems. And I'm going to guess, and I think we'll get into this next week, I'm going to guess most of us don't deal in the arena of appropriate anger most of the time. We'll talk about it next week. Anger must be resolved, again in verse 26. Anger has to be resolved or it becomes sinful. If we don't deal with it right away, it can turn into sin. Anger can be curtailed. Anger, and anger can be sidetracked. It can be taken care of. In verse 27, we learn that if, if anger is prolonged, if we, if we let, it, let it boil in our hearts, it'll give ground to Satan to work. It'll be a place for him to launch from in our lives. Verse 29, it can lead to corrupt, unwholesome, degrading talk. Verse 30, it can grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, it can be totally canceled out. And again in verse 31, it becomes sin when it results in bitterness. When that root of bitterness develops in our heart, we know that we've let, we've let anger simmer too long in our lives. Again in verse 31, Sin, anger must be eradicated before it turns into rage. And next week we'll talk about the progression of anger. We'll talk about the different phases of it. Again in verse 31, anger must be forfeited before it leads to fighting. Anger must be stopped before it becomes slander. Anger must be mastered before it becomes malicious. Anger must be conquered, can be conquered by compassion, and then finally in verse 32, <coughs> anger can be defeated through forgiveness. Moses was a key character in the history of the gospel. And I love, I love studying and preaching on, on Moses. Moses was known as a friend of God. He was a truly great person of God, and yet this anger, this issue of anger tripped him up the last we see of Moses, he was following the Lord one last time up the mountain. And from there, just he and God, as they went up the mountain, Moses could look out over the promised land, but he couldn't go in. He died on that mountain. God buried him. No one knows where his grave is today. You see, the sin of anger, which when left unresolved, is an impediment in our relationship with the Lord. 
just like in the life of Moses, it creates a dissonance in our relationship with him. Like a, like, a, like a song when the final chord doesn't resolve a song or complete a song, it leaves a tension. When anger is, is festering in our lives, it leaves a tension. It leaves an unresolved issue in our life. So we'll look at this again later. I've said that about 10 times already, but we'll look at this again next week. We'll get into the mechanics of it a little bit. So it seems like a difficult place to leave the subject today. It's unresolved. It's dissonance. But when I think about it, that's exactly what the law does, isn't it? That's what the law does. You see, the law is a mirror. It just holds us up. Hold, you hold the mirror up, and it just shows you who you are. It just, it just leaves you in this place of, of unresolved tension. I know I need a Savior. But the law, the mirror, can't change it, can't change the reality of what's in the mirror, my sinful self, my angry self. The law is like a tutor that leads me to these truths and leads me to these principles and leads me to what God says and leads me to understand what the condition of my heart is, but the, but the tutor, the law, can't do anything about it can't provide a solution. It can only look ahead to a solution. And so when I think about this teaching in Matthew 5, and Jesus, Jesus goes on to say, he just gives, pronounces a severe judgment. We'll read it in a moment. He just leaves it hanging out there. I feel like that's what we're doing this morning, not intentionally, but that's what we're doing this morning, and that's what the law does. And the law makes us Look ahead, and for us who are post-cross, we can be grateful. We can be full of praise for the cross and what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's his grace that sets us free from the bondage of sin. It's his grace that gives us the power to overcome anger. It's his grace that, that in, his, in his Holy Spirit that transforms our life and, and takes us away from what the law condemns us for and takes us into newness of life. Isn't that amazing? The law is to, to create a hunger for the cross. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about here this week. So I encourage you to meditate on these things this week. Take Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 32, and, and meditate on them. Next week we'll take it apart. We'll go back to Matthew chapter 5 as we turn to the table. Again, no coincidence. We often take this next passage as a communion passage about the fact that we need, to, we need to examine our hearts before we come to the table. And the Apostle Paul tells us that as he wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, you know, you don't come to the, don't come to the Lord's table with a heart that's unexamined. Ask the Lord to deal with these issues before you come to the table. And here it is. Jesus takes us through the law of murder, and he tells us what the law says, and he says, this is, this is, but I say to you, this is the full extent of the law, and it leaves us hanging there. And then he goes on to say, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We'll talk about that more in depth as well. 
Is it a coincidence that that's the teaching that comes after the law of murder? And I don't think we, we can understand the, the scene of the temple. When someone enters the temple and they go through the different the courts, the courts of the Gentiles, the courts of the women, and they go through all these, several, these different courts and then they finally get to the place where they're bringing their offering and they're bringing their sacrifice. We don't understand the process that it takes to get to that point. Jesus says, if you, if you find yourself at the altar, if, if you've gone through all of that and you've got your, your sacrifice and it's ready to go and you're ready to, to make an offering to the Lord and you realize somebody, you're, you're sideways with somebody. And I wonder if, if we don't go back and say, you know what, if, if anger has gotten the best of you in a relationship, if you've said something that was just out of control, then what does he say to do? Leave your gift at the altar. I know you've come a long ways, and I know, that you're, I know that your heart is there to worship me, but there's something in between us. And it's this anger problem. It's this broken relationship problem. And I want you to leave your, altar, your gift at the altar, and I want you to go back and deal with it, and then come back and worship me. You know why he says that? Because no amount of religiosity, no amount of exterior criteria can resolve this issue. It has to be addressed in the heart. And Jesus said, we need to prepare our hearts for communion, for coming to the Lord's table. We could never take that serious enough. So let's prepare our hearts this morning. Lord Jesus, we, we hear this teaching and it's, it's, it's profound 